0: Was everything was cracked up to me. If you were lucky enough to get in, and believe me, the scene at the door was not easy. It was tons of people, and you had to either be somebody or know somebody or look like somebody. And if Steve Rubel, the co-owner, was not at the door, the main doorman, Mark, would just look at me like I was a piece of garbage.
1: I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. I'm Nick Harcourt and joining us on The Sound of Success today is a journalism legend and beloved son of New York City, Michael Musto. Michael shaped gossip reporting and the crucial documentation of New York City's queer and drag nightlife scenes during his time at The Village Voice, where his must-read La Dolce Musto column ran from 1984 till 2013, and again from 2015 through 18, and where he's recently returned as a contributor for the newspaper's new quarterly digital reincarnation. In his career, Michael has written watershed coverage for The Village Voice on Club Kid and killer Michael Alec, whose story became the center of the book and movie Party Monster. And he's also a regular contributor to The Daily Beast and Queerty. He also has bylines in Out, The New York Times and Vanity Fair, among countless other publications. And somehow, amongst all this writing... He's also a cabaret singer can't wait to talk about that mate he's also performed at broadway institution feinstein's 54 below and alan cummings club coming we're thrilled to have him here with us today welcome michael good to meet you
0: thank you nick great to be here
1: thank you so much you're back at the village voice a core part of new york city journalism and just such a massive influence. Uh, Obviously, it folded in recent years, only to return digitally as a quarterly publication this year. What's it been like to be back? How different is it? And uh, how are you working with a quarterly publishing schedule instead of weekly? What's changed?
0: Well, it's quarterly plus the website, and so I've done a few assorted pieces. To me, I feel like the Village Voice is part of my DNA. I can never get out of it, nor do I want to. My column lasted over 29 years, After I was laid off, a new owner then brought me back. Then it was web only, then it folded. Now it's back with a new owner. And the great thing about the new voice is it's very village voicing. It's really true to the spirit of what it always was.
1: Are you holding any expectations about how long this might last?
0: They plan to grow with it. It's going to go supposedly next year to a monthly as well as the website. Maybe one day it'll be weekly again, and I'll do my column again. I mean,
1: exciting stuff. I remember when I first moved to the states and uh, spent uh, ten years in upstate New York. Whenever I went down to the city, the first thing I did was pick up a copy of the Voice.
0: Well, you were looking for an apartment, probably, but also yeah. <laughs> but the articles are great too.
1: <laughs> no, I was reading about music. You, you're from the, the city, obviously, and you came up dancing at places like Studio Fifty Four, the Palladium Danceeteria and Paradise Garage. You never retired really from the scene. I know that you've stayed out and about most nights in the city that never sleeps over the years, although that's got to have been a little difficult to navigate uh, during the last year and a half.
0: Yeah, I mean, I found obviously during lockdown that I I was not leaving the house in the evening. Generally, I was laying down in bed about 8.30 at night, and it was kind of shocking. But I found that even though that was my worst fear that, you know, I would have to just face my own thoughts and lay still and not go hopping around. It proved to be fine. I was okay with my thoughts. I was okay with the relaxation. And then I was ready to explore it again, back onto the scene. And starting in May, I started running to the clubs again, vaccinated and masked when necessary. And uh, the spirit is back. People are more anxious than ever to be in each other's face
1: well as you mentioned things are slowly returning and uh maybe there's a little bit of a hiccup right now with delta but are you seeing any nightlife trends coming uh, out of what we've been through in the last almost two years now
0: no i mean it really is sort of like bike riding everyone's just back to doing it the way they did and it's a And a lost art that was never lost. The second everyone got vaccinated and started going to clubs, it was same old dancing, schmoozing, attitude, impatience at the door. You know, all the old qualities came rushing back. And it's still drag queens everywhere you turn on the drag, on the gay scene. Really nothing has changed at all. And that's fine. As as long as we're back to partying in some some way, I'm always going to be there.
1: How has the the drag scene changed in recent years, pre-COVID? Obviously, it's gone a little mainstream these days with RuPaul and his TV show that has just won countless Emmys. Has there been any shift out there with the Queens and how they're performing?
0: Yeah, there's a huge shift. Uh, The only reason anybody performs as a drag queen, it seems, is to get their reel together so they can submit it to Drag Race. If they've already been on Drag Race, then they're playing better venues and making more money. So there's kind of a divide between the Drag Race girls and the ones who wanna be Drag Race girls. And everything seems to be geared toward that show. It's amazing the influence that it's had. During lockdown, Drag Queens, like every other performer, found they had to do Zoom concerts. And they found it a little alienating because you're saying, you know, everybody makes some noise and all you're hearing are people clanking comments on their keyboard. It yeah. was very <laughs> distracting. And people were also tipping by Venmo and everything. Everybody made do. We're very survivalist as a race, the human beings. They still did shows, they still got tips, but everybody was itching to go back in person. And now it's back to the drag queens doing these elaborate shows. Drag Race has raised the bar for drag queens. These people are Broadway level talent. They're dancers, singers, everything, not just lip sync. But you feel sometimes the desperation that all they care about is getting on that show.
1: As I mentioned at the beginning of this, when we were talking a little bit about uh, your career and and your past, you've got a whole other side of you, outside of writing as a cabaret singer. So a couple of questions, how did you get into it? And do you have any upcoming cabaret shows? Have you been able to start booking shows again?
0: Uh, Yes, well, growing up, I always liked singing as well as writing, and I was in school musicals, I was in the Glee Club in college, and in 1980, I started a band called The Must, M-U-S-T, as in my name, Michael Musto, and then it became Michael Musto and The Must, because it was sort of a spoof and a homage to Diana Ross on the Supreme. We sang Motown cover songs. When that ended, I somehow put singing away, but then it came back, people started asking me to sing again. And I started doing these duet shows at Club coming. They were all benefits for different charities. And I would sing, I got you, babe, or get happy slash happy days are here again. The Judy and Barbara duet with all kinds of different people, Molly Pope, Dina Martina, all these great singers. And now I'm just out there. And yeah, I'm performing on uh, Friday, September 24th at the Triad, which is uptown. I'm a guest star with Dorothy Bishop, who's a female, female impersonator. In other words, she's an actual female drag queen. And she does share Tina Turner, Barbara, all those people. And I come out and do like, you don't bring me flowers. I'm Neil Diamond. I do that with her.
1: Oh, wonderful. As well
0: as a few solo songs while she's changing into the next incarnation. So come check me out on the 24th at the Triad with Dorothy Bishop.
1: Yeah. So if you're in New York, make a make a, a note of that. Or if you're close to New York and you can get in. Let's talk a little bit about ABBA before we get into our, our regular questions here. Uh, I know that you recently per, uh, participated in a, a fan sing-along in Central Park. In support of the, the new album, Voyage, I have a couple of questions that come out of this. First of all, as an ABBA fan myself, what your you take on this new music? And then tell us about the, the event and how you got involved with it. Did the band contact you?
0: The label and the PR around the event, which was their announcement of their new music, contacted me and it was me and two Drag Race uh, contestants, Jan Sport and Jackie Cox, the three of us are on stage at Central Park Summer Stage, not only leading the crowd in sing-alongs, but also talking about ABBA, why we like them, and then we cut to them in Stockholm, where the group itself talked about the music, the video, the digital concert that's coming. I like the new music. To me, it sounds like they sounded at the beginning. It sounds very early 80s in in their sound. Their voices haven't aged, which would be fine if they did, but I mean, they've always had a crisp, very polished, well-produced sound that they also replicate in concert and they've kept up that sound. And I remember Dancing Queen was one of the first songs I ever heard when I went to a disco and I assumed it was about a gay person. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. didn't you uh, see that girl, watch that queen, whatever it was. I always thought about some some gay guy and I think everyone felt that way and that's why we love the song. When we found out it was actually about a girl, that was okay too because it's just a great song. And at that time, Nick, ABBA was kind of okay to be made fun of. I don't know if you were around when they started and made it big. I was. There were a punchline. Yeah. There were total punchline. It was not cool to like ABBA, and it became cool to like ABBA after, like, Mama Mia. And before that, there was Muriel's Wedding, the movie used their music. Oh, and sure. You start to realize they're brilliantly produced singles, and they're so catchy. Even the songs about breakups, you know, like, winner takes it all they bring so much joy because you can't get them out of your head.
1: I, I think I was about 15 years old when I saw them on Top of the Pops over in the UK when I, when I was growing up, and they were performing Waterloo because they just won the Eurovision Song Contest with that, uh, with that particular tune. Uh, and all I remember is just seeing those two girls and being just knocked out.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm gay, okay, but they're gorgeous. And, like, all four of them are shiny. Like, their clothes are shiny, their skin is shiny, their hair is shiny, and the music is shiny. They're almost like holograms. They're not real people. They're holograms.
1: <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite movies ever is the, the one that they made in Australia at the, the height of their fame, where they went down there and it was sort of like a, a mockumentary movie. And I've just recommended to anybody if you just want to go see a little time capsule.
0: I have a lot of respect for them. And I think like David Bowie and those people I actually probably like to have a, I have a feeling. Maybe they didn't admit it in public. but
1: what, what do you think of the idea that they're going to be touring as holograms?
0: Well, like I say, there were always holograms to begin with anyway, so it makes perfect sense.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Let's jump into our uh, little uh, Proust-like questionnaire here. Let's start off. Your first musical memory. What's the first time you were aware of music?
0: I came of age in the 1960s and my parents had record albums. I, anybody remember actual record albums? And one of them was Mitch Miller. He had this TV show called Sing Along with Mitch, which was like the original karaoke. And it's like what I did it with ABBA in Central Park. Ha- they would have the, the lyrics with a ball bouncing along and you would have to sing along with Mitch and his orchestra. And Leslie Uggams was the featured singer. And it was like old standards, like Moonlight Bay and songs mm-hmm. like that. I loved it. I didn't even think it was kitsch. I just thought it was good. And my parents also had albums by an Italian singer named Jimmy Roselli. He was a great singer with this incredible, powerful voice. He would have made it much bigger, but he wouldn't cooperate with the mob. He was actually (laughs) very cool. Can you imagine? He actually had integrity. And he would sing this song called uh, mala Femina about some horrible woman who had done terrible things. And it was misogynistic, but it was so dramatic. And, And we would watch Lawrence on TV my family and we would all kind of make fun of them because I don't know if you know that show Lawrence Welk was this man with a very thick accent and and a one and a two and he would always say wonderful wonderful and he had this array of singers who looked like they were rejected from some county fair in Iowa or something this woman with no neck with the soprano voice and this man uh, this woman I liked was Joanne Castle she was this very happy looking saloon pianist it was such a circus Bobby and Sissy I knew all the acts intimately just from watching the show. As much of a joke as it was, they brought music to my home.
1: I was going to say old school variety shows, really, right?
0: On a very syndicated kind of weird low budget level. That needed <laughs> right. act of genius in a way.
1: How old were you when you were watching these shows? What kind of age were you? And what was it about them? What was it that just made you feel that this was something special?
0: I was prepubescent. What I liked about it was the review factor. I mean, I carry that through to my duet shows. If you don't like the current act, in three minutes there's gonna be another person. Some of them were people you could mock, some of them were people you you could actually enjoy. And I liked the variety of music, the way they brought back old time music from before I was even born, whether it be 1920s Charleston stuff or big bands or Swanee, Preston Foster kind of music. I was learning about music from that show while I was laughing.
1: What was the first music you bought with your own money?
0: Uh, the first singles I bought were Beatles. Mm-hmm. Uh, she Loves You, and I saw her standing there, and they were thrilling. They were so exciting to me.
1: What was your first exposure to the Beatles?
0: It was hearing the songs on the radio and then seeing them on the Ed Sullivan show, a variety show. Right but you could barely hear them on the show because the audience was all y- young girls screaming through their music and you, all you heard was girls screaming. But there was something explosive about the Beatles and I loved Motown so much and Diana Ross, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, of Terrell, Mary Wells, the Isley Brothers, you name it. And it was a battle all through the 60s with the British invasion and Motown. I was one of the few people who loved them both. Like in the 70s, I was one of the few people who loved Studio 54 and the Mud Club which was sort of the new wavy club. I'm a crossover artist, as it were.
1: I was talking to somebody about this a couple of days ago that I I grew up in the UK, which was a little bit different, obviously, although we had a lot of the same music. And I was saying that at the time, in the 60s and certainly into the early 70s, you you picked a lane. You were very unusual there that you were able to cross in and out of those genres. You are way ahead of your time because most people were like, if I like Motown, that's the only music I like. If I like... Bebop, that's the only music I like, right? When back in the day, I guess before we had the advent of the iPod, when anybody could just build their own jukebox, we were all just listening to whatever was the music that we liked.
0: Yeah, I always defied expectations or genres, and I just liked what I liked, even with movies. Back then, there wasn't really niche marketing to teen boys. So I would go to like Julie Andrews movies, the early modern Millie. And it was just whatever I cared about. And on the radio, I would hear a diversity of of songs because they would play top 40. Top 40 included the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. It also included the Supremes and Marvin and Tammy. And I loved all of it.
1: Let's talk about live music. What was the first concert that you you went to without adult supervision?
0: I was not a big concert goer until the 70s. And I went to a David Bowie concert in Philadelphia. I loved it. He was in his very chic sort of young Americans mode where he was wearing the fedora and the fancy suit. He was not wearing a lot of facial makeup at this point. And I love the musicality, his surrealness, his glamour, his subversion. I also went to an Alice Cooper concert, and I have to say I adored it. I love the theatrics. It was giddy. It was silly. He had, like, gigantic teeth, like molars. I, every number was a gigantic set piece with a lot of production values. And I like the pure silliness of it, as opposed to David Bowie, who took himself very seriously.
1: Both of those artists, though, very theatrical in their, uh, in their performances.
0: Yeah. And then, you know what? I got into new wave and punk in the late 70s. There was a group called The Shirts. Annie Golden was the lead singer. She became a Broadway star. She was also in the movie of Hair, if you remember that. Hmm. And she was so great as a lead singer. She was my favorite female singer at that time. And uh, they just put on a a thrilling show at this theater on Second Avenue, sort of a, a, a theater that had been converted into a new wave concert hall
1: let's talk a little bit about dancing. We were talking about Dancing Queen earlier on. And uh, what do you listen to when you want to dance today? If you felt like dancing in the house or the the apartment in New York (laughs) this afternoon, what would you put on?
0: I'm one of those people who was not ashamed to love disco music in the 70s. I thought it was extraordinarily put together. It gave a lot of black female singers a chance to to shine and it was so beautifully orchestrated and it really brought people together. And I love Thelma Houston. I love Gloria Gaynor, Vicki Sue Robinson. She was white, but still, <laughs> she was great. I also love dance music after that. I loved house music and you know, anything with Martha Wash, Tana Gardner, these are evergreens for me. I'm not that plugged into current music, I have to admit. But one thing I could always do is go on YouTube and just play an old video. That's a way of hearing the music. I don't download music. I'm sorry. I'm not on Spotify, iTunes, or anything like that.
1: Where do you discover new music today? Do you still listen to the radio? Or is that still a place for you to find something new?
0: Really, people introduce it to me on different social networks, and then I could always go to YouTube and hear Adele, Billie Eilish, Ariana Grande, and I really like them all. Rihanna, Beyonce, love them all.
1: You're talking about dancing and and some of the music from the 70s, which brings me to Studio 54. What was it
0: like? It was amazing. It was everything was cracked up to me. If you were lucky enough to get in, and believe me, the scene at the door was not easy. It was tons of people, and you had to either be somebody or know somebody or look like somebody. And if Steve Rubell, the co-owner, was not at the door, the main doorman, Mark, would just look at me like I was a piece of garbage. So I would have to hope Steve Rubell would see me and and pull me in once you got in it was thrilling the main floor was just extraordinary light fixtures coming up and down at the stroke of midnight a big quarter moon set piece would come down with a cocaine spoon attached to it (laughs) confetti you know silver glitter would pop at odd moments the music was great like i said and the crowd was fantastic and it was before celebrities were really so guarded You could be dancing on the floor and be just feet away from Liza Minnelli or Margot Hemingway or any number of people.
1: Of course, there there was nobody there with iPhones to capture an Instagram immediately, anybody falling on their ass or anything.
0: Exactly. Exactly. There were some photographers, but they were pre-approved. And also once you were in, everybody was equal. You were equal to the celebrities. You were a celebrity just for having gotten in. And downstairs apparently, which I found out later was some kind of cocaine hangout yeah. for the celebrities. Upstairs was the, this was a converted uh, theater actually where Ed Sullivan show had been filmed. Upstairs was a balcony and if you sat down, somebody would just start grabbing your private parts. So this was your one-stop hedonism shopping place before anyone knew about any dangers that could come from too much sex, drugs, or rock and roll.
1: I was never fortunate enough to be there at Studio 54, but I'm pretty sure it's the same location that they did the recent uh, uh, revival of Alan Cumming in in Cabaret, right? It's the same place?
0: Yeah, it's a Broadway theater, and then the basement is a separate Cabaret place now. Mm. But ironically, in the 90s, Giuliani cleaned up, quote-unquote, the nightlife uh, in Times Square and made it all safe, and then shows opened like Cabaret with you know, half-naked people bumping their crotches in the audience faces. But it was more legit because it was a Broadway show. But it's one of many ironies of New York.
1: Yeah. Talking about dancing, what about the other side of the, of the coin? If you're feeling a little melancholy or a little sad, what do you listen to then?
0: The same music that I would listen to if I'm happy. You know, I don't have special sad music. I love Luther Vandross, Adele, Diana Ross, Alba, Elvis Costello, Bowie, Lou Reed, Laura Nero. My two favorite albums are Laura Nero and Belle. Patti LaBelle, Sourdash, and Nona Hendrix, Gonna Take a Miracle, and Diana Ross and the Supreme, Sing and Perform Funny Girl. Both of those albums can give me endless joy. So can Anything by Bowie and Lou Reed. Even though Lou Reed is so depressing that it's really heroin music, but it uplifts me. Billie Eilish is the only one I would not listen to if I'm sad because I I would surely just kill myself. (laughs)
1: laura nero is is due for a little recognition i think it's been a a few years now since she passed i did get to see her up in uh, woodstock at the bearsville theater probably 25 years ago or something like that she's fantastic that's a great list and next question is about music video obviously in the 80s things changed musically when mtv arrived and we had all these amazing videos do you have a, a favorite music video or a music video that left a mark on you
0: I loved all those 80s videos because the music stars at that point had to be good in video to make it, and they all were. They were incredibly visual, whether it be Cyndi Lauper, Billy Idol, Madonna, Prince, and so on. My favorite music video of all time is a more recent video, and it's billed as the worst video ever made. It's called Oh My God, and it's by a Norwegian comedy duo, Erland and Steinjoe. Do you know these guys?
1: I do not. I guess we're going to have to go look for this.
0: They're almost like a Norwegian Little Britain, Matt Lucas and David Williams. Yep. Uh, the song has absurd lyrics like, oh my God, I'm looking for a sailor or who are you to realize I'm no human being. And a scarf keeps dropping as they're dancing. It's almost like a parody of a bad video. They're lifting a wood beam for no reason. And it, actually, if you strip it of the comedy, it's a great song. Someone should really cover it.
1: All right, I'm going to look this up right now while you answer our, our next question. <laughs> do you have a band or an artist that you love but feel perhaps they never got the, the big break?
0: I went to see Tiffany a few years ago. Remember Tiffany? I think we're alone now.
1: I do. I actually saw her a, a couple of years ago at NAMM out here in, in L.A. She
0: and Debbie Gibson were basically the teen idol girls of the 90s. And Tiffany would play like shopping malls and do pretty much cover songs like I think we're alone now. And then she did Playboy later on. I didn't realize what a musical artist she was until I saw her at a, a jazz club called Iridium. She's an amazing singer, songwriter, everything. She deserves a huge break. Patty Smythe, I also love from Scandal. Mrs. John McEnroe, they had two big hits, which were Goodbye to You and The Warrior. And I just loved her to mean her singing, her voice. And what happened? She deserves more of a career. And Anastasia was another great singer that I think deserved a better career. Anastasia is someone else who I loved, who I thought deserved a better break. What happens to these women? Everybody, please support those three.
1: Do you have a, a, a band or an artist that you would describe as a, a guilty pleasure?
0: For me, it's Diana Ross and the Supremes. You know, it wasn't cool in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, a very macho neighborhood, for, to be a young male who loves the Supremes because they were the epitome of glamour. Even when they sang My World is Empty Without You, it was about sparkle and glitter. And they were uplifting and it was a gay thing to like, let's face it. So that's my guilty pleasure. And I've never turned back on that. I, I adore everything related to Diana Ross and the late Florence Ballard, Mary Wilson, and the Still With Us Cindy Bird song. Anyone associated with Supremes is a genius to me.
1: I love the fact that we've been talking to you for about 30 minutes now, and I keep looking out of my window because I'm hearing uh, sirens, but no, it's talking to somebody who's in a, a New York City apartment. It's fantastic. We're getting a, a complete feel for your day in Manhattan, and as we're wrapping up this conversation, uh, I just want to ask you, how, how are you feeling? How, how's fit things with you right now?
0: I'm fine. I, I've been through everything. I'm like a Stephen Sondheim song. I'm here. I'm still here. That's amazing how resilient we can be here in New York. We've been through a lot. New York is a great place because it is a place for music. One of the things that got us through lockdown were these weekend things at Tompkins Square Park and also at Washington Square Park where people would just play music. People would become DJs. Uh, A band would just pop up in Tompkins Square Park. And it really took us out of the misery. And music in New York is a great equalizer. New York's always gonna be a cutting edge place where musical trends are broken. And uh, I'm still going to dance no matter what the soundtrack is. It's
1: great talking to you. Michael Musto has been our guest on The Sound of Success. Michael, do you have a a website where people can see your uh, writings? No, I
0: don't have my own site, but I'm on Facebook. I'm at the Maximum Friends, but you can follow me. And I'm also on Instagram, which is uh, Musto184 is my tagline.
1: Thanks for hanging out with us. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Key to For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and at sparknetwork.com.